Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a distinct pleasure to welcome you to this event hosted by the Center for New American Security and the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. I'm Martin Rasser, Senior Fellow here in the Technology and National Security Program at CNAS. Now, the topic at hand is what steps the U.S. government can take to reduce critical dependencies on untrusted information and communications technologies, or ICT for short. We're reminded of these dependencies and the risks they pose all the time, whether it's the solar winds attack, semiconductor shortages in the auto industry, or China threatening to cut off critical raw materials, such as rare earths. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission's white paper on building secure ICT supply chains couldn't be more timely and important. I'm delighted to have this great panel here to talk about these issues. I'll start off with some questions of my own, but I really encourage you and the audience to participate. You can tweet your questions with the hashtag 2021, uh, or you can send an email to my colleague, uh, JJ, at jjzeng at cnes.org. And with that, let me introduce our panel. We're here with Congressman Mike Gallagher, representative of Wisconsin's 8th District and co-chairman of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. The Congressman serves on the House Armed Services and the Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. He's a former United States Marine Corps officer and a former intelligence officer. Welcome back to CNAS, Congressman. Good to be back. Thank you. Great. Uh, next, we have Dr. Sarah Sewell. Uh, Sarah is the Executive Vice President for Policy at InQtel. Previously, she served as Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. She also served as the inaugural Deputy Secretary of Defense for Peacekeeping. She is the former director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University. Great to have you with us, Sarah. Uh, up next, Dr. Sheena Chesnett-Greitens. Uh, she is an associate professor at the LBJ School, faculty fellow with the Clement Center for National Security, and a distinguished scholar with the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. She's the award-winning author of Dictators and Their Secret Policy, Coercive Institutions and State Violence. Welcome, Sheena. I'm so happy you're able to join us. Glad to be here. Thank you. And finally, Mark Montgomery. Mark serves as the Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Previously, he was Policy Director for the Senate Armed Services Committee. Mark served for 32 years in the U.S. Navy, retiring as a Rear Admiral in 2017. Welcome, Mark. Great to have you here. Thanks, Martin. So we're here today to talk about the findings and recommendations in the Solarium Commission white paper, Building a Trusted ICT Supply Chain. So let me begin by commending Rob Morgus, the lead author of the paper, for this impressive piece of work. It's, it's comprehensive and makes important policy recommendations. There's a lot to unpack. The report covers technology alliances, manufacturing capacity, supply chain restructuring, global competitiveness all very important aspects of the broader geostrategic competition with China. So Congressman, before we dive into the white paper itself, mm -hmm. could we start with you giving an update on the status of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission? Yeah, well, thank you for, for hosting this. Uh, I'll confess, um, my mind has not been on uh, cyber issues or <laughs> national security issues over the last two weeks. So it's good to to be back uh, engaged in this, if for no other reason, it gives me a sense of, of normalcy. Um, so thank you so much for hosting this. Uh, we had a very um, positive conclusion to our legislative process uh, in the context of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, as you know, we released our final report in March, 2020, uh, the week before Congress shut down for coronavirus. So while that was uh, inauspicious timing, thanks to Mark's leadership and um, Jim Langevin's energy and, and Angus King's general likability and the goodwill he generates, we were able to get, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 26 of our 50 legislative recommendations effectuated uh, into law, most of which were in the National Defense 
uh, Authorization Act, and that was uh, that was a great batting average for us. We actually, you know, lest anyone be confused, because Angus and I um, sort of, you know, tend to come off as as nice people. Uh, we are very competitive, and we actually took a look at the historical batting average for commissions and wanted to make sure that we uh, we beat that, and we have so far. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of work. Uh, yet to be done. Uh, we are still constituted as a commission, uh, albeit in somewhat scaled down form, uh, but we will be continuing our work into the new Congress. And I'm very excited. Um, I have engaged with the incoming uh, Biden uh, national security team. I am, um, let's say, cautiously optimistic about some of the personalities they might be considering for for key cyber related provisions, uh, positions. And, you know, I told them that, you know, as you know, not that I'm exceptionally influential or, or that high ranking, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I will look forward to working with them, uh, in the same way that I worked with the previous administration on areas of, of mutual interest that were, were good for the country. And so all of that, I think puts us in a good position to build off our initial report, build off the supply chain white paper and, um, have some real legislative successes going in, uh, to the 117th Congress. And the final thing I'd say is, um, you, know, you know, obviously the solar winds hack, I think underscores how important this issue is. And I think while we're still sort of sorting through all the implications, um, it directly implicates not only the white paper, but some of the recommendations that we had in the original paper that were subsequently put into law, most notably giving CISA the ability, the authority to do threat hunting on .gov networks, as well as the creation of a national cyber director. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll stop talking and I really look forward to this discussion and, and I thank you for it. Well, great, thank you so much. It's uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you back and congratulations for the, for the tremendous impact that the commission has had uh, so far. And it, it sounds like uh, the future uh, holds a lot of uh, very Good opportunities for uh, for the commission. Um, so so let me turn uh, turn to the supply chain issue, Congressman, with just a top level question for you. Uh, how do you define the issue from the Hill's perspective? Well, I think I mean if you look at our original report, we called on the government to take steps to reduce critical dependencies um, on untrusted information and communications technology. So in addition to recommendations to improve intel and information sharing around supply chain risks, um, core to our recommended approach was the creation of an ICT industrial-based strategy uh, to ensure we had more trusted supply chains and you know, availability uh, of ICT uh, technologies. Um, the white paper we produced is our effort to further this recommendation and lay out a strategy and some recommendations for implementation and put bluntly, I would say in the context of supply chains for ICT, uh, we, have a, we have a China problem. Uh, over the past two decades, China has mobilized state-owned and state-influenced companies to grab a dominant position in markets uh, for several emerging technologies, um, especially the market for telecoms equipment. Um, and that's not an accident, but rather the result of a concerted strategic effort by the CCP to capture these markets through a mix of government-led industrial policy, unfair and deceptive trade practices, and uh, IP theft. Um, as a result, you know, we believe the critical strategic competition between the US and China and our friends and partners is taking place in an international system of commerce that due to Chinese intervention is neither free nor fair. So our strategy is a, an effort to get in that game um, because in short, I think, in our eagerness to do something about a very real challenge, the United States has leapt without a, a plan of action. Um, and we've had some, some, some positive developments. You know, we have congressional proposals like the American Foundries Act, the CHIPS Act, the Telecoms Act. Um, but, you know, we need a broader strategic uh, effort to shore up our, our ICT supply chains. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more on that point. Um, the the need for a broader strategic vision on these critical technology policy matters is uh, is key if we're going to be successful in this in this geostrategic competition. Um, Sarah, let me let me turn to you real quick. So you've written about the need for the U.S. government to focus on disruptive innovation, including in microelectronics and five G. Can you uh, help us explore the difference between 
onshoring or reshoring the supply chain versus innovating solutions to the supply chain challenge? Sure, and thanks for the question and thanks for the opportunity to be here, Martin. Thanks to CNS and thanks to the Solarium Commission uh, for doing an enormous service to the country by giving us a comprehensive way to think about many dimensions of the problem. In terms of your specific question about onshoring and reshoring versus innovation, I think there's a bit of a bias in the national security framing of the problem to, to want to own and to protect sort of physically the supply chain. And that's really important. And the, the ICT uh, white paper has some great recommendations on, on having to do that. And there's a lot of momentum now in Congress for how to do that. But at the same time, one of the things that we know from the history of American innovation is that, well, we know two things. One, as the commission points out, you can't onshore everything. This, we live in a globalized world. We have a globalized supply chain. You have to figure out what's, what's the minimum required amount that you need to be able to produce at home and have reliably available to you. And you also have to accept the fact that you're gonna still rely on external components in some cases. But as we think about, about what it means to secure a supply chain, we also have to recognize that what's allowed us to be leaders in these technologies overall has not been this, the, the reliability of our supplies or the ability to make them on American territory. It's been our ability to innovate. And there, I think we have a different set of national challenges that's harder for us to think about because we've had a particular model for thinking about innovation since the early Cold War. And, and that model has been, you know, the US funds research and development predominantly in the context of weapons systems and defense applications. And then the private sector commercializes the rest. And as the report helps make clear as it struggles with what's a national security technology and what's a civilian technology, is that many of the, the, the technologies today that are privately, purchased that are commercially sold and sometimes that are more create greater national security vulnerabilities by their existence overseas than even in the domestic market are not issues that the US has traditionally thought about as being national security concerns and so if the market isn't prior isn't seeing them as a place where it can get a good return on investment we've got gaps and the government has typically not wanted to have anything to do with that. And so this note, the, the, the plea from the commission to, to think afresh about definitions of national security, what constitutes security vulnerabilities and the role of government in trying to address them, I think is super important. But innovation is not our go-to. We tend to go to the protect it, create it ourselves, know that we have it. And I think we can perhaps come back to this, but that the innovation piece is something we absolutely can't lose sight of. No, thank you very much for that, Sarah. That's a, a very important point. Um, Mark, let me let me turn to you real quick. So I mentioned at the outset uh, this this issue of of rare earths, and I think the report does a really good job talking about uh, the importance of raw materials. Um, you know. ICT supply chains uh, contain numerous vulnerabilities when it comes to raw materials. Can you walk us through what the current situation is, some of the challenges the United States faces, and where does the commission see opportunities to address these problems? Uh, thanks, Martin. And, and uh, you know, Sarah was exactly right when she talked about that we almost immediately turn every issue to a national security issue and quickly look for a a U.S.-based solution, and we at the commission tried hard not to do that because rare, rare earth elements, and you know, we kind of looked at materials in three ways: um, silicon and, and germanium, which are not rare earth elements but, and aren't rare, but which where we do have some challenges. But then rare earth elements, where you know these are kind of the raw materials used in the production of a lot of high-tech products, and and while we do mine and extract them, we don't. Um, refine near enough for ourselves. What's happened over time, we used to be a leading extraction, mining, and refining country. But it is a very messy process. And years ago was an extremely very messy process. And uh, and it really ran into our own um, cost of labor issue and um, environmental protection issues. So even as the United States, sometimes you'll, you'll see an effort by a company that, oh, we'll go mine this. 
The reality is what we mine right now already gets sent back to China. So I think this was areas we have to we have to broaden our our vision, you know, uh, open up our our uh, our spectrum a little bit and and look for other solutions than just refine mining and refining in the United States. From my perspective, China has too much of an advantage in that for us to compete. It would just be putting a lot of money down down a hole uh, to do that. Instead, we should rely on allies and partners. There are allies and partners that can do this refining, you know, where their costs of labor are less for so, for technical skills, and that's where our costs of labor really drive up high, or at the high end of of technical manufacturing. And uh, I think there's a way to do this overseas. And frankly, where even when you meet an environmental protection safeguard like uh, in the United States, say for nuclear, the construction of nuclear uh, power plants, there's still a not in my backyard mentality that takes over and prevents you from doing something that you could do in an environmentally safe manner. And I don't just say that as a naval nuclear engineer, but I guess generally understood that we can do these things safely, but sometimes NIMBY takes over. So I think rare earth elements is one of those great opportunities to identify allies and partners that we can rely on to either to mine if they have the mining or do the refining using our tools, uh, using our minerals or another ally and partners minerals uh, to build up, um, you know, uh, to build up a supply chain that isn't completely reliant on on uh, China. And that's going to be important because these uh, the rare earth elements are, are, cr are critical parts of technology hardware production. And which is not, you know, that kind of um, that kind of uh, dependency is probably not wise, national security wise, but forcing it into a U.S. only solution would be equally unwise. Uh, one other uh, thing that uh, that I would I would mention here is that um, is that the the, the United States um, already does take has brought Taiwan manufacturing into our country, so it's absolutely you know and it done those kind of investments. I think it's appropriate to take it back the other way into, into some of our allies and partners. So I'm kind of excited about the opportunities we have in rare earth elements, but I fear trying to either legislate or through the executive branch direct a U.S. only solution. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Mark. I, I'm uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're already engaging very well with uh, with Australia, for example, on the rare earths issue, but uh, but Japan as well. Um, and one thing that uh, the Japanese have uh, a lot of expertise in as well is the recycling of rare earth elements. Um, you know, because they had their supply cut off in 2010, and they invested quite a bit of energy into researching novel ways to reuse these materials. And that I think is, um, you know, another thing that the U.S. government should think about investing more in, in particular because that type of basic research tends to have a lot of follow-on effects that are that are beneficial for the economy as a whole. So, um, so something to, uh, to discuss further, I think, uh, within the Congress and within the administration. Um, uh, Sheena, uh, I wanted to to ask you. So the uh, the report devotes quite a bit of attention to standard setting. Can you walk us through why standard setting is so important, and t tell us a little bit about how you see the United States approaching standard setting, and how that compares and contrasts with the Chinese approach. Yeah, thank you. I mean, first of all, let me say that, you know, this report, I would, I just want to commend the, the author for a really, really thorough um, look and comprehensive look at this issue and, you know, appreciate this discussion. Um, I was particularly heartened to see the emphasis on standard setting because I think it is such an important tool that the United States could be using to shape the, the ecosystem in which we think about ICT supply chains. Um, but the, the reality is that this is an area where I think China has been much more strategic and proactive to date than uh, the United States has. And, and as the report highlights, that that needs to change. Um, the, the way that China has organized domestically to come up with and decide, you know, what are the set of standards that are in PRC interest um, and in the interest of Chinese companies, um, and then, so, so China has been domestically quite strategic in developing and formulating a coherent set of Chinese standards. Um, and then it's been equally strategic in going out and using various international fora to get those standards adopted um, and to be a leader in the standard setting process. And the report does a great job of pointing out that this has knock-on effects on patents, on cost competitiveness, on interoperability, on any country that then wants to upgrade or, or um, expand what it currently has. Um, 
And these are all things that the United States should care about. Um, I guess the one thing I also wanted to highlight about the importance of standard setting is, you know, what's at stake in terms of global freedom and democracy. And so one of the areas I work particularly on is tracking the uh, export and use abroad or globally of, of Chinese surveillance technology. And again, this is an area where, you know, China has been incredibly strategic and proactive um, in terms of its leadership role in the ITU, in terms of the number of submissions it's made about, for example, facial recognition technologies to the ITU. Um, it sounds like it has a, a batting average at the ITU that, that is competitive with, with this commission's um, track record in Congress. Um, in that case, I don't think the batting average is, is necessarily a good thing, but about half of the, the standards that Chinese companies have proposed on facial recognition have been adopted by the ITU to date. Um, and you know, and that, that's an issue because um, it's in the United States interest, again, as uh, other parts of the report highlight, um, that we have both technical and regulatory, technical standards and regulatory frameworks around the use of this technology um, that make it compatible with liberal democracy. And so, you know, part of part of the stakes of the standard setting process, I would say, are, are not just about um, you know, U.S. national security in terms of the narrow issue of the supply chains, which isn't all that narrow. Um, but I think it's important to to place that in the context of the impact that a lot of these technologies are having on freedom and democracy worldwide. Um, and so, the, you know, the recommendation to work with like-minded allies and partners is really important. And standard setting is one of the best tools the U.S. could be using. Um, in terms of, of pushing and working multilaterally to get some of these standards adopted. Um, but I think that's going to take the United States adopting a, a much more sort of strategic approach itself. And so in some of the work I've done on surveillance technology, my recommendations have been that the United States really come up with a, a comprehensive plan looking at which fora should set the rules and standards for which technologies, um, who and how is the United States going to, to push and advocate for those standards, and what is the role of partnerships and alliances in those fora? What is our specific plan for engaging in these different standard setting bodies um, in order to try to advance um, advance United States and, and democratic interests? But the reality is that at this point we are playing catch up, um, and so I was just really glad to see that the report highlighted the urgency of, of that task. And I hope it's, I very much hope it's something the administration picks up. Um, I also very much hope it's something that Congress will, um, will hold the administration accountable for and do its own part in pushing that, that process forward. Great. Thank you so much, Sheena. Um, Congressman, let me uh, pivot back to you. I, I think one striking aspect of the white paper is, is you're advocating for a kind of industrial policy that the United States hasn't done in decades. You're really making the argument that market forces alone can't address these problems successfully. Um, so in the executive summary, uh, summary, you and Senator King write that the framework laid out in the white paper could inform similar strategies for other key technology areas and critical items. Do you envision the commission's work serving as a springboard for formulating proactive strategies in, in other areas? And and ultimately, do you, do you see your work um, essentially making the case for a true national strategy for technology? Well, Anytime someone says the I word, I uh, a little uh, conservative devil on my shoulder, uh, me in the face. But uh, yes, that, that that's what we envision. I'd like to I'd like to make a quick point though on rare earths, if I if I can, um, just because I think it's important. Um, I, I went with uh, the the chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee on Haas, Joe Courtney, my chairman of the Friends of Australia Caucus, to Australia last year or two years ago. Um, and that was our biggest takeaway. We went to Western Australia um, and our big takeaway was the need to do exactly what, what Mark and, and, and Sheena are, are talking about um, and really enhance our partnership, particularly with our Five Eyes allies. And there seems to be an obvious one when it comes to Australia and Japan, as was mentioned before. Um, we, we had a small victory in the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, uh, it was an amendment that uh, Courtney and I authored that would require the SECDEF to prioritize the acquisition of strategic and critical minerals from U.S. and allied sources, ensuring their uh, continued protection of our supply chain. So I just wanted to bring that up as a shameless plug for 
for something very productive that um, Joe Courtney did. Um, but yes, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at if you look at the original report for our original Solarium report, what you'll see is a very um, concerted effort to get this balance right between uh, recognizing that the private sector uh, is uh, the main effort uh, and at the leading edge when it comes to cyber theory. Um, that it owns 80% of the critical infrastructure. Uh, and therefore, it would be counterproductive for the federal government to come in with a one-size-fits-all, a very onerous regulatory policy that tells the private sector what to do. We, we, we tried to, uh, to adopt a more incentive-based approach, but I think when it comes to industrial policy, or as we talk about an ICT industrial-based strategy in the original report, we do believe that that's an area where the federal government needs to be more proactive, a little bit more uh, prescriptive, uh, and where we as a commission can uh, provide a little bit of the, the thought leadership and, and some potential models that we can build off uh, going forward. So I guess it's up to you guys to determine whether or not we struck the right balance, uh, but certainly that's, that's what we were going for. And it was um, amazing to me how many of the Republican uh, commissioners, both uh, legislators and um, and outside experts, were willing to uh, to utter the dirty I word from the start of our discussions. No, it's, it, that's yeah, it's it's really remarkable to see how the conversation about industrial policy has shifted. Uh, you know, just in the in the past few years, um, I think ultimately it comes down to everyone recognizes we're in this very serious competition with China, with a mercantilist approach. And, you know, the status quo just won't get us to where we need to be. And, and frankly, you know, and, and the report points this out as well, one of the appendices is the United States has a very rich history of technology strategies that it applied. Um, you know, if you look at World War II and, and during the Cold War, um, we can very much do this type of policy and still have it be in in the spirit of the the broader free market. So I think uh, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity there. Um, Could I maybe add one one thing to that? I'm yeah, sorry. Of course. Uh, I don't know who said it earlier, but just talking about how sort of the old model of the federal government um, making massive investments in research and development. I mean, I will say one of the more remarkable things I've encountered in my four years in Congress is that um, I currently have a, a bill uh, with. A very progressive colleague of mine named Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, and the Senate co-sponsors are Chuck Schumer and Todd Young. That would amount to a massive investment in uh, uh, research and development from the federal level, while also trying to modernize the process through which federal R&D dollars are allocated and, and sort of spreading that out across the United States and not having it concentrated on the coast. And I think you know, anytime you have something where, you know, a, a conservative House member like me and, and Chuck Schumer are in near alignment, you know, maybe that's a suggestion that we're on to something and that there's a lot of bipartisan support around these ideas. Uh, and I, I really look I'm really optimistic about that in the new Congress for whatever that's worth. Hey, Martin, can I jump on one thing? It's it's interesting. You, you said it's over the last few years we've gotten better. I would say it's over the last nine months on industrial policy. In January, Representative Gallagher and I were going to staff and member meetings, trying to get minor changes to the Defense Production Act to just acknowledge cybersecurity as a national security thing where during a, a crisis, we could bring in Title 10 forces to do military forces to help FEMA or CISA. And we were getting pushed back. You know, two months later, we were doing DPA for, for cotton swabs. I mean, so the, the Defense Production Act and how we see industrial policies changed much over the last 10 months. Operation Warp Speed is industrial policy on the level of the Tennessee Valley Authority, on the level of you know the World War II reprogramming of our of our uh, plane and and uh, automotive factories to produce you know the how we won World War II and and certainly much much bigger than Semitech, which is the kind of example we tend to use of industrial policy in the modern age where the United States you know basic prop I want to say propped up but heavily supported its microchip industry in a challenge from Japan. So I think. I think there has been this dramatic change over the last nine or 10 months. I think, you know, a very, very small silver lining to COVID has been this recognition that sometimes the government 
is the best person to really tackle a hard challenge. Yeah, I think the uh, the widespread brittleness of our supply chains was, uh, you know, that realization was a real eye opener for a lot of people, what we experienced in, in March and April in particular. Um, yeah, so to your point, uh, there'll be some very interesting changes up ahead. Um, so we're starting to get some uh, some questions from our audience, and there there's one uh, that I'd like to uh, you know just throw out to the group here, uh, and it pertains to the, the one of the key themes in the paper, the importance of of partnerships with like-minded countries, and and the question here is. Um, what is the best grouping for the United States to develop a secure supply chain? Is it the the D10, uh, so the Democracy 10, this grouping that the Brits proposed, uh, the Quad, Five Eyes? Or if all are useful, how do we manage different levels of, of sensitivity? How do we manage different technology areas? And just to open that up to all of you, uh, whoever wants to, to uh, take a whack at it. Well, I'll just quickly say, I, and then I'll defer to Chin. I, I mean, in my my sort of, I always sort of view things through the lens of Five Eyes first, just because we've had, so, we have so much history there, and there's been so much legislative work that's gone unnoticed around, you know, incorporating Australia into our national technological industrial base, and it just provides a, a very easy framework to build off of. Although I really do like the D10 um, concept, I I just think there's some really low hanging fruit with our Five Eyes allies. You know, I've I, I advised the Trump administration and I advised the Biden administration to really put a, a, a gold standard free trade agreement with the UK uh, now that they've navigated their exit from the European Union at the top of their agenda. And that, of course, would have huge implications for ICT uh, and for all other manner of, of technology. So I just sort of throw that out there. Yeah, just I mean, first to, to second the the congressman's recommendation there. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, the other, I guess, the other point that I would make is that you know we're talking about a, a pretty large range of um, technologies when we use the term ICTs, right? There's um, the reading the report for me really brought home just how broad this the scope of uh, of the challenge is, um, and so I think we're going to need a layered strategy. Um, this isn't uh, it's going to take somebody to to a lot of time to get into the weeds and figure out which, you know, which of these groupings should tackle which pieces of this problem. Um, but I guess I would start with the assumption, um, if we're talking about crafting this kind of, you know, strategic coordinated strategy, um, that all of these groupings are going to be useful at some level and in some way. Um, but we're going to have to figure out how to layer and sequence the pieces. And that's why, you know, being able to have the the kind of organization and strategic approach that the report highlights is so important because figuring out exactly how to match the pieces, layer them, and then sequence the steps is going to be an, an immense challenge. It requires a lot of a lot of legwork and a real knowledge of both the diplomatic and 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 geopolitical fora we're talking about and of the specific issues related to the range of technologies that that were you know that that are covered in the report. Great, thank you, Sheena. Uh, Mark, I think uh, you have yeah. a, a follow-up point you want to make. One quick point: I agree completely with Representative Gagger, and especially Sheena's point that it's a wide. I mean, this is a, a very large bag. One country that has to be in it that wouldn't nat naturally make the list of the Five I or Quad or D10 is Taiwan. We are not going to get ourselves into a safe, secure, trustworthy soft IT hardware and software supply chain without Taiwan. And I think this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, we are Taiwan's security partner of choice, really, because there, there are no other choices, but we're their security partner of choice. And I think they understand that. They do tend, though, to flip quite a bit. And, you know, their trade's 25, about double with China than it is with us. And, and I'm okay with that trade as long as it's sneakers and clothing and things like that. The degree to which it becomes some of the high tech. Uh, Rosetta Stone tools, well, then now, now we ought to have a problem. So I think there's an opportunity here. We, you've seen a change in our Taiwan security posture over the last year. I think it'll continue to some degree in the next administration. And we should integrate that and have an economic partnership lead the security partnership. This is a you know, democracy uh, over, over the last 40 years has grown into a full-blown democracy with fights on the on their, uh, you know, between legislators on the floor and growing their economy 20 fold in 40 years. I mean, this is this is the absolute right partner for us, but they'll have to make a choice about becoming a trustworthy and secure partner with the United States. 
and protecting what they divulge and or provide to China. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point, Mark. I think um, you know the question of of Taiwan and and the broader U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy is a, is a super interesting one, and I think something that in over the course of uh, the next four years it will be very interesting to see how that relationship develops. Uh, India as well, I think there's a lot of opportunity to engage much. Uh, more strongly with India, particularly on these high tech matters. Uh, they've got a lot of expertise, a good foundation that we can build off of with them in order to uh, you know, better integrate in these types of supply chain matters. Um, uh, Sarah, let me, uh, let me turn back to you real quick. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, R&D versus investment and commercialization. I'd love to, to get some more of your thoughts on, uh, on that particular point. Thanks, Martin. You know, I think um, Congressman Gallagher makes a really important point about the extent to which we have to reckon with a very different form of geopolitical competitor in China. You know, Russia wasn't doing what China does, which is essentially growing our industries at home, protecting them and then subsidizing them massively on the international uh, front. And, you know, the United States is never going to be able to compete with that because we're not going to want to play that infinite subsidization game. So innovation, coming back to innovation as being really the key. And one of the things I was really pleased to see in the paper is the, the thoughtful recommendation that the government needs to do more to think about the gaps in private sector investment, not to displace private capital, but instead to fill gaps where for whatever reasons, and it could be the huge amount of capital investment that's required up front. It could be that the returns are going to be much slower coming in than you know your typical venture fund can wait. Uh, it could be because the profits simply aren't there right now because the market's not there right now. But there are critical opportunities for the government to say, for example, we want to open the RAN. We're going to try to fuel that by making key investments. There are some areas of microelectronics that we absolutely cannot afford to lose, but we need to find capital to fill some of the gaps that the private sector is not filling, whether it's in things like tooling or whether it's in things like advanced packaging. So there are some really important opportunities for the government to think about equity investing as a tool in its toolkit um, that's very different from an industrial policy like China's that essentially will subsidize till the cows come home. And then the other point I wanted to make just very briefly, and I think it's something that Congress as a whole needs to spend more time thinking about, but there's a lot of energy, as Representative Gallagher said, there's a lot of energy in terms of more R&D, and I think there's a lot of bipartisan support, but the reality has been historically, that's all the government's funded, and a lot of that R&D stays locked in the labs. It doesn't make it through that chasm into commercialization. Typically, the U.S. view has been, that's not what we do as a government. We let the private sector do that. And what we're seeing now is that the national security implications of so much of the commercial technology and things that are dual use or even primarily civilian in use, but when used by the German citizens or, you know, by, by others overseas can create vulnerabilities for us. We need to have a different attitude and we need to really focus on commercialization of the great R&D work that we've already done. So I think there's, there's a maturation process in terms of there's a gap between we just do R&D and we do industrial policy. And it has to do with these key two pieces, investment and commercialization, where I think there's a lot of scope for us to grow as a country. Sarah, are there any specific capital market incentives that you have in mind to, to help bridge that gap? Well, there are a host of different mechanisms that we can use. You know, at, at InQtel, where I am, we're fundamentally interested in finding places where the strategic investor who's concerned less about profit and more about mission can make a difference, right? So, so for example, with microelectronics, electronics, if we can start to develop some of the new tooling, that will, we can then prototype and see how it plays in, you're gonna to begin to build an interest among the design firms for using the new tooling. And it's gonna become uh, a, basically a self-sustaining process that the government would then be able to back out of and let the private sector uh, take over. That's the kind of catalytic role that we'd really like to see, I think, 
government play. When we think about overseas and the scale of what it does it mean to begin to try to give people choices that are different from Huawei when they're thinking about their 5G infrastructure, that's on an entirely different level. And there you do wanna do, I think as the paper quite rightly points out, you wanna think about some of your international investment tools. You wanna to think about loan guarantees. You wanna think about reinsurance. You wanna think about other tools that can create options for governments to not feel trapped, that they have to buy vulnerable, Chinese technology that could make them vulnerable and that will build in vulnerabilities for decades to come. Oh, great. Thank you, sir. Um, Sheena, I wanted to, to go back to you real quick. Um, there was a, a little bit of talk uh, just now about R&D spending uh, and some other human capital components. Um, what are your thoughts on that aspect of, of this this issue and and how do, how does the human capital component fit into the the broader ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. First, let me just um, amplify one thing I think that that Sarah said that was really important, um, which is about you know the United States having the energy and having worked with its partners to create alternatives. Right in in many of the cases that I look at with Chinese surveillance technology, um, it is the easiest off the shelf, cost effective. Um, step that a, a mayor or a provincial governor in a country somewhere can take to solve what they view as their most pressing electoral challenges, which are things um, like crime, attracting investment, boosting job growth, um, all on a specific electoral timetable, right? And so China has provided certain ICT solutions that make it very, very easy and appealing for it to be um, you know, a, a partner of choice. And I think it's really important that the United States think in this global context about how to create that alternative. Um, so just, I just kind of wanted to highlight that that piece of what Sarah was saying. Um, I guess the other, you know, the other point here um, goes in a little bit different direction. Um, but but I, I really um, think that it's important when we you know when we think about the issue of uh, R and D funding, um, STEM education, et cetera. Um, that we think through, you know, what the human capital dimensions of, of this this challenge are. Um, and again, this is an area where I see China as having been really pretty highly strategic. Um, you know, we've all read at this point about any number of cases uh, about China's Thousand Talents program. I just saw that MIT um, arrested a scientist at MIT was arrested last night or this morning. Um, for failure to disclose grant funding to the Department of Energy. Um, so we've all read about Thousand Talents and the multiple talent recruitment programs that, that China has. Um, you know, when I read through statements and documents from Xi Jinping all the way down through the Chinese party state, there's a real emphasis on the development of AI and tech talent um, as an incredibly important priority for the Chinese, not just for Chinese education or for the technology sector or for innovation, but as a national imperative. Um, and so, you know, I guess the you know one thing that I think it'd be helpful to to think through and talk about um, is what it what kinds of policies are necessary um, in terms of human capital, education and R&D to complement you know, some of the other steps that we've seen outlined and proposed in the report. Um, and I, again, I think there's a, it's, it's important for Congress, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's bipartisan support for, for um, putting funding toward some of that, that R&D. Um, I, I think that that's, that would be a great and really important step. Um, the only thing I guess I'd add to that is that, it, you know, in the work that I do, um, it's really important to understand um, how different countries use that technology and how ICT, the, the tech pieces themselves, interact with the political and regulatory frameworks in some of these countries. I would say particularly China, um, but maybe some of the other countries that, that Commerce has emphasized, um, like in the rules that it, it put out this morning, I think it named six. Um, and so, you know, I think we need to have funding specifically for R&D for these technologies. Um, we also, I guess, would, you know, the one thing I would say is we also need to pay attention to the, the, the politics of how they're used and employed, um, because that, again, is what's going to shape um, the impact that they have on national security, as well as on global democracy and U.S. interests in different countries from partner or ally countries all the way throughout the world. 
Great. Thank you so much, Sheena. Uh, Congressman Mark, uh, there's a an audience question that I'd like to pose to you. Um, the question is, given China's history of intellectual property theft, how can the United States balance collaboration and information sharing with our allies while also, also protecting our innovation base? Do you want to go first? I, I'll go for that one, and then I see the second okay. one teed up perfectly for the congressman. Um, so on this first one, what I'd say is, you know, far be it from the United States to criticize other countries' security about information. You know, uh, when you look at the uh, WikiLeaks uh, scandal in our country and, and um and, and uh, you know Snowden. So I mean, we we got to be very careful when we say you have to, you know, you guys need to do more or less on this. I I, I think that um, we should work with our allies and partners to share best practices on cybersecurity. I think we try to do that. I think we need to do a better job. I do think that there there are we still need to work with allies and partners on getting the um, uh, agreements on what's uh, appropriate behavior in cyberspace settled and and how you rapidly uh, attribute an adversary action um, so that we can we can take a, you know, um, a response action to it. Uh, um, and so I, I think we need to work through those things. But I think our allies, you know, when you start with the five eyes and then work your way out, you know, we can work together as a team on this for intellectual property theft and, 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 and for protecting our industries and protecting our .gov. But we're certainly in no position to, you know, say, do as I do. Probably we are in a position to say, do as I say. And, uh, and I think we just need to work more closely with those allies and partners and ourselves to uh, do a better job. But I, our defense innovation base needs to be international. It would be a failure if we relied only on American companies and only on American engineers because we have benefited through this, through you know these kind of rich relationships with with the Five Eyes and with uh, with NATO partners and with Japan and South Korea over, over the last three decades. So I'm hoping we'll continue to push that out. But certainly, there are some that argue for a much more insular approach to this, and I, and I hope that doesn't prevail. Great, thank you, Mark. Um, Congressman Gallagher, here's a question uh, specifically for you. Um, so you mentioned that we have a China problem uh, and the audience member would like to know, does this mean we have a CCP problem or a strategic problem or both? Well, my view is that we have a, a CCP problem, not a China problem. And we need to be very clear in our public messaging and in our um, diplomatic outreach that that is an important distinction, as well as seize on opportunities to uh, highlight the way in which the CCP is the enemy of its own citizens. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we have um, effectively done that uh, in recent years. Um, to the extent we have a strategic problem, I would say we have a geopolitical problem, which is to say, you know, the the Trump administration's national security strategy and national defense strategy um, are are advocating for a very radical shift in U.S. foreign policy, one that prioritizes the Indo-Pacific over CENTCOM. And it's not even close. Um, and but similarly to sort of the late stage Obama administration's failed pivot to the Pacific, as yet, this is primarily a rhetorical commitment and not one that has manifested itself uh, in terms of military hardware and, and diplomatic focus, notwithstanding some incredible and heroic work that certain Trump administration officials, particularly Matt Pottinger, uh, have done. I think we still find ourselves having to balance the exigencies, at least while recognizing that the Indo-Pacific and the Eurasian Rimland are our priority. And it's going to take us a while for the actual force presence we have and the diplomatic presence we have to catch up to that rhetorical commitment. So that's sort of the the geopolitical problem I think we have right now. And I think and I think the Biden administration will confront that problem. And there's a risk if we don't get a few things right that we could find ourselves sucked back into CENTCOM as we're struggling to prioritize allies and partners in, in Indo-PACOM. If that if that makes any sense, if I understood the question correctly. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think that answers it very well. Uh, does anyone else uh, want to weigh in on this particular point? Because this is a, a pretty fundamental issue that that we'll be grappling with uh, over the coming decades. All right. Well, let's uh, let me pivot to uh, 
to Mark real quick. Um, so uh, the the commission has a lot of ideas for public-private partnerships, and one that I found particularly interesting is creating a national security investment corporation. So what would the mission of this entity be, and, and how does the commission envision uh, this corporation working? So um, you know, we can't rely totally on the existing USAID, uh, OFTA, uh, um, FDIC, or DFIC kind of uh, programs that are running right now. And so our, our theory was that we needed to begin, we needed to backstop U.S. investment in getting to the, uh, in getting proper funding in, the, in the, particularly the IT hardware industry. And I was going to jump in what Sarah was talking. She made a great point about uh about you know when you're asking about investment uh, out in silicon valley I, as i recall out 90 somewhere between 95 and 97 percent of the startup money is going towards software versus hardware enterprises and i think it has to do with what she also i think mentioned about strategic patient or have you know having i would say it's strategic patience and getting investors to have strategic patience to deal with a hardware startup i just think it takes a lot longer from initial investment to the um, to the uh, uh, to the uh, realization of a of a decision that you're going to succeed or fail, not profit, just the recognition that you're going to succeed or fail, and that there's not enough patience in the investors to do IT hardware. And so, something we dominate. If you go back to you know 1998 and Lucent Technologies, things uh, uh, the IT kind of hardware industry uh, um, equipment areas that we dominated, or at least had a a plurality stake. We're down to one, two, three percent. The only exception I can think of to that is the microchip assembly tools, where we still compete with the Dutch and the Japanese, the three countries, and and making the really high-end ones that are that go into the U.S. and Taiwanese and Japanese uh, microchip foundries. But the um, the truth of the matter is, we don't have the strategic patience to do IT hardware investment, and so part of the vision was that. Was that we would create a uh, a backstop kind of funding to support the time consideration that went into that, and try to get more private sector investment into the IT hardware industry. No, oh, thank you for that, Mark. Yeah, I, I really think that's a, a very interesting uh, recommendation and something uh, I hope that uh, the incoming administration and Congress uh, looks at very closely. Um, I want to turn to another uh, audience question now. Uh, so, of course, the the solar winds hack is still very much uh, in people's minds. Um, how can the recommendations of uh, of the report, uh, so the you know the uh, the main report by by the commission, how can they apply to helping to prevent or responding to the hack? Well, I'm happy to jump in unless someone else. Um... You know, as I view it, and obviously there's a tendency to sort of think, well, you know, if only they had listened to us, this would have been uh, prevented. And, and who knows? That's a counterfactual. That's impossible to play out. But as I mentioned before, I, we do think, and Mark can jump in if he thinks I'm, I'm wrong, that e even allowing CISA the ability to do threat hunting on .gov networks, because you sort of have to start from the assumption that your networks are, are compromised, uh, would have at least allowed us to detect this uh, quicker. And I think it's notable that it was FireEye, not the federal government, who sounded the alarm uh, originally. I think um, also funding of the hunt and incident response teams uh, at CISA is absolutely critical to preventing or mitigating an attack like this. Um, and there are several provisions in the NDAA that were aimed at strengthening CISA's capacity to carry out uh, its mission. If you read just the executive summary of the chairman's letter that uh, Senator King and I put out, we explicitly say, you know, we we believe the right approach is to um, elevate and empower CISA to do its mission. And while, you know, neither CISA nor the NSA will ever be able to compete with the private sector on salary, uh, they can compete on mission. I mean, the NSA com com and Cybercom compete quite well on mission right now. And we think eventually CISA can compete on mission if we give it the tools it needs to actually accomplish uh, its mi mission. The other things I just would highlight is, you know, we had NDA provisions ensuring resiliency of the nuclear command and control systems from a cyber perspective. And then finally, you know, we believe that a, a, uh, a national cyber director uh, that is well-resourced and 
has the ear of the presidents, would be in a, a great position to be a point of coordination and leadership within the federal government and then do outreach to the private sector, which we think uh, would be critical in a solar winds type scenario. But then I, I'd, I'd ask Mark to chime in with anything I missed. No, I, I think it's spot on. It would be wrong for us to say, oh, if all 82 of our recommendations had been taken up in November, this wouldn't happen because clearly it was already happening. I would say if you went back 10 years and did the kind of institutional changes that we recommend across technology, people, and processes, and, and Congressman Gallagher mentioned all three in his discussion there, and, and you are consistently funding those properly across the .gov and allowing the .gov to build the relationships with the private sector it needs to have. I think we maybe something like this would have been harder to achieve, certainly at this scale. But you can't rewind the clock 10 years. You know, we have these 82 recommendations of you know, 30 to 40 have been taken up between law and executive branch actions. And if we continue to do them, we'll be in a safer condition. But I do think anomalous activity detection and threat hunting red teaming are, are key to uh, to operating in a zero trust environment where you can never be sure that the software and hardware you have running on your frontiers is keeping out the adversary. By doing the anomalous activity detection, doing the threat hunting, you put yourself in a better position. And, and uh, Congressman Gallagher mentioned the three or four different places where we ha have pushed that and which were agreed to in the current, current either author authorizations or appropriations. You know, if I could just chime in here, I think one of the, the interesting challenges that we've consistently had is whether or not the paradigm that we've been using for cybersecurity and whether the kinds of incremental innovations that industry has been offering are really meeting the bill for what Mark just rightly referred to as the need to move to a zero trust environment. And so, you know, do we have the kinds of, of AI applications that we need to be able to have the ability to monitor in real time do are we are we thinking in the right way about the tools that we're going to need to verify hardware regardless of its provenance where it comes from um, because we're going to continue to live in a globalized environment and we're going to need to be able to look at hardware components when they come in those are some of the innovation angles that I think will will remain critical because we are, I think, at a point where we really need to, to not do sort of more of the same in the way that we've been proceeding, but with this larger paradigm shift that I think the Solarium Commission is a really important lever to begin to move us. We've got to think about the problem in a different way. We've got to recognize that we're going to be managing risk. We're not going to be eliminating risk. You know, we're going to be moving from perimeter security to identity-based security, and we're going to be having to recognize that we're in an environment where we never really have full trust and we're gonna have to learn to manage that. And it's a really different paradigm for the country and for industry. And the key is how do we get government to incentivize private sector to not just make more profit off of, of a model that's not really working for us as a nation and instead shift into a different way of problem solving to move in the direction that the commission is recommending. Great, thank you, Sarah. Uh, we have another audience question, and I'd love to get uh, ev everyone's uh, thoughts on this. Uh, the The question is: um, so there was an interesting point raised that our innovation base needs to be global, and it's not just American talent we should be relying on. What should the Biden administration do on this front? And uh, I'll open that up to anyone. Uh, so whoever wants to to jump in first, uh, go go right ahead. Well, I'll jump in. Um, we need to welcome talent. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, this is this is a theme that a lot of the different entities that have looked at innovation have been have been harping on. And it's it's not it's it's immigration writ large. It's visas writ narrow. It's even and one of the interesting things is, you know, we were talking earlier about Australia. The Australians have an extraordinary quantum talent. And there's really limited quantum talent globally. And the U.S. and Australian firms uh, like to share talent. And, you know, some of our export regs even seem to implicate the movement of persons and when, and their ability to come to an American firm and work for an American firm can trigger all kinds of, of legal ramifications. We have to look at all of that miasma that gets in the way of what I think Mark and the, the congressman were talking about, the need to really build a democratic coalition of trusted partners to tackle the most important questions. And we're gonna have to divide and conquer on particular problems and we're gonna have to really pool 
our intellectual learning together. Um, but there's a host of stuff that I think is quite congruent with uh, President-elect Biden's mentality about what it means to open America to a to a global world. And so I expect to see progress on that front. Yeah, if I could, if I could jump in on that as well, I, th I think that the United States should be thinking about itself as engaged in a, a competition for global talent um, and thinking about how we attract uh, the best, most innovative people to, to come and work in the United States. And I think, you know, unfortunately, to a certain extent right now, we've started to frame the problem as innovation or security, right, because of some of these really pressing issues that we've had with um, the the use of and misuse of researchers in the thousand talents or other talent recruitment programs in China in particular. Um, but I, I think it's a mistake then to see it as well, we can we can enforce these reporting requirements and we can you know do the appropriate counter espionage or counterintelligence work on university campuses or in our, our laboratories as it relates to these critical technologies. Um, that that is somehow incompatible with also competing for and recruiting the best global talent for our own innovation base. Um, it, however exactly we debate and, and talk about these issues in the future, um, I think it would be a mistake to frame that question as an either or. It has to be both and. We have to pursue effective security um, and innovation at the same time. And so we, we need immigration, visa, and education policies in particular um, that approach it as a both and, not an either or. Great, thank you, Sheena. Um, Mark, Congressman, any uh, thoughts on this particular question? Yeah, so I, I would mention one thing, and, and first I talk domestically, there's something we can do. Um, we have a program called Scholarship for Service, you know, pays the ROTC bill for uh, about 380 kids a year right now. So about a thousand are in it right now. It's for two to three years. And they then go work for the federal government. They get their clearances while they're in the program. They do internships at federal agencies. They then go work for the federal agencies, payback similar to ROTC, like the, the program I did to get my commission in, in the Navy. And I think it's a very effective program. And it's one that when we, we dreamed it up 23 years ago, it was supposed to be 2,000 a year, which is how many federal cyber security workforce had to join the workforce that year. It's now up to 4,000 a year need to join, and we're still stuck at 350 graduates. So we just need, that is a complete, if you put money in, the program grows. And here's the beauty. It grows the computer science department, the STEM departments, and the computer security departments at all the um, uh, uh, universities, colleges, and community colleges that you invest this in. And it is has been fed to, if you study the 75 or 80 schools it's at, it has improved all those schools well beyond the 10 to 12 scholarship students they have in place, but it's paid for professors, paid for more labs. I mean, it is a fantastic enabler and that's where the government's best. And I suspect that there's a, you know, that there's a, uh, a foreign student aspect to this in the sense that if we can grow these departments better and better, we allow these students to come in, we allow them to stay and work, we're gonna benefit long-term. Uh, from this, uh, from this, uh, for the the building of this STEM education infrastructure, it's still one of our great advantages. There's a reason the thousand talents comes to the United States to mess around with our professors, because we have the good professors, because we have the good labs, because we have good students coming from around the world, and we need to uh, we need to reverse any effort to stop that and enable it, and particularly enable it for people who could eventually become federal workers. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thank you, Mark. I had one it's point. Go ahead. I'm sorry if Mark covered this and I zoned out, but um, Mark and I have just had a lot of each other the last two years. Um, I just as a military veteran, I, my, my own experience, and this might just be a, a, a Marine Corps thing, but the TAPS process is terrible, the transition assistance, and there's a lot of talent coming right out of the military that could be seamlessly integrated into a government civilian job, but we can't even convince the military to allow people to put, uh, you know, their email address on a DD-214, let alone sort of identify proactive talent. So that's kind of a, a low-hanging fruit that I think we're not we're not grabbing for what that's worth. Well, uh, we're uh, coming up on time here, so Congressman, I want to give you the opportunity to have the last word, share some some closing thoughts, and uh, then we'll then we'll wrap. Well, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm the only non-expert on the panel, so you, you want me to have the last word, but I'll, I'll do my best. But um, 
thank you to Sarah. Thank you to Sheena. And thank you to Mark uh, for, for letting me be part of this discussion. I just think it's, it's absolutely critical and um, not to get sappy, but um, you know, at a time when I think we're obviously seeing uh, divisions uh, in, in sort of political tribalism, um, uh, you know, front and center and, and manifested in some very dark and ugly ways. I just want to assure you that as a member of Congress, um, you know, work like this uh, is exceptionally bipartisan and there's just a huge opportunity to build upon it. And um, it, it's so critically important. And then the final thing I'd say is so much of what I do is, is just leveraging the expertise uh, in places like CNAS and and from Mark uh, that exists in the, the think tank and the private sector um, and, and just sort of stealing good ideas where we see them and, and sort of putting that into legislative language that discussions like this are, are incredibly helpful for the legislative process. So I salute you for convening it and uh, thank you to all the panelists for your intellect and your, your thought leadership on this issue. And I really look forward to working with you over the next two years. Well, thank you so much. That's a, a great note to end on. Um, I want to thank our speakers, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Sarah Sewell, uh, Sheena Chestnut-Greitens, and Mark Montgomery. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. Uh, thank you for your excellent questions. This was a, a really great discussion. Um, I'm, I'm sorry we weren't able to get to them all, uh, but you know we'll be doing more events like this in, in the very near future. Um, finally, I wanna say thank you to my colleagues behind the scenes who made this event possible. Jasmine Butler, DJ Shai Corman, Chris Estep, JJ Zhang, and Einiki Rickinen. Have a great afternoon, everyone, and see you next time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.